Welcome to the New Books Network. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Kashmir, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think for all those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good evening, good morning, good night, whatever time of day it is, Project Kashmir's listeners. It's a great pleasure today to have on the show Adam Davidson, who I could try to introduce to you now, but I think it possibly make more sense for you to introduce yourself the way you do would to anyone else if you just bumped into them at a business networking event or a party and they asked you, what do you do? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm the CEO of, um, of Trident Resources, soon to be renamed Trident Royalties, uh, which is uh, a London exchange, uh, a market listed um, mining royalty and streaming companies. So, so we invest in, um, in royalties and streams uh, across uh, various geographies and across the breadth of mining commodities. So everything from gold and copper to, to iron ore and obscure stuff like mineral sands. Um, it falls within our purview. Uh, so it's an investment company that, um, that gets exposure to cash flows from these these various assets. And you're speaking to us today from Denver, Colorado, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So despite um, myself being in Denver and, and with the London listing, um, where we're a pretty dispersed team. So most of the board sits in the UK uh, and I, I'm in Denver, just sort of a, a mining hub here in North America. And then my colleague is in Perth, Australia, which again is a, a mining hub for that side of the world. That's right. And, and so the, as regular listeners know, the, the main themes of these, this podcast are the innovation, entrepreneurship, but also the entrepreneurial journey. And when I looked at your your LinkedIn profile, which we'll post in the show notes. I saw you were a, a member of the, I think the Australian Mining, um, what is it? The Australian Mining Federation, uh, Australian, um, I'm just looking, you help me out here. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some Australian mining body you're a member of. Oh, the uh, Institute of Company Directors. Oh, that's right. And I, I thought to start with your Australian, but in fact, you're, are, you a, are, you, are you an out and out American? Is that correct? I am, yeah. I, I spent a, a few years down in Perth, but um, but yeah, based in Denver for for the the last sort of ten years or so. Okay, okay. So that that was just. And I think it's because of the first link I clicked on when I was researching researching Trident was took me to the Perth office, and I thought, ah. And I think yeah. it wasn't wasn't, <laughs> wasn't your first major deal in Australia? Was that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Our our first transaction was over an iron ore uh, mine in Australia, in Western Australia. Um, and we're finding quite a few opportunities in Australia. So yeah, we, we've, we've definitely got a focus on that side of the world. Okay. And the, I came across you as a result of the business going, the business you lead going public and being listed on, on, on the stock exchange in the UK. But before we get to that part of your, your story, I'm always interested in the, what I call the entrepreneurial journey. And I know that prior to this, you, you, you were working in a private equity business, but when you were 
growing up in America, were you, did you think that one day you'd be the leader of your own a business and did you see yourself as an entrepreneur or is it something, because it's quite a step to step out of the, step out of the, the warmth and comfort of a well-funded private equity to be doing what you're doing now. What, what, what was it, did you have like clear expectations of the way your life would go and are you doing what your family expected of you or is this a bit of a, is this a bit of a surprise for them? Um, perhaps a bit of a surprise for them, but not necessarily for myself. I think I've always had sort of the entrepreneurial bug. Um, and, and so it's actually a, a bit um, you know, counterintuitive for myself. So I've always generally worked for large organizations up until now, um, where you did have that that comfort of, um, you know, of having a, a pretty clear runway in front of you. Um, but yeah, it got to the stage where I was very much ready to, to do something more entrepreneurial. So uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I couldn't help myself, I had to make the jump. Mm. And that's a very interesting, a very interesting fact that quite often if you talk to people who've like in business on their own account is something that they could barely stop themselves from doing when the opportunity yeah. was there, <laughs> that they're sort of ready for it. And what, like, but as a teenager, if we go back, like, I know, I know we can talk about your education, your, your, mm. your, your school and stuff, but when you were like a teenager or a kid, did you sort of, you obviously didn't go straight into business because you worked for larger organizations, but did you see yourself yeah. having your own business one day? Was that always there at the back of your mind or did it gradually evolve over time? Yeah, I've always had the uh, personal mantra that I, you, you, you can only go, but so far working for other people. So I guess that, that was always, that was I'm always very conscious of it, but I think, and then, you know, sort of a circuitous path to, to, got, uh, to get to where I, I am. Um, but um, but no, I, I think that was always something I was very conscious of and was sort of striving towards. It's just, uh, you know, a matter of sort of building up your experience to the point where I was comfortable making the move because um, you, know, you can obviously make that sort of move too early and, um, and not, not that failure is not a good education, but uh, didn't, didn't want to fail. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got, got you know, the, the sort of education experience I needed before, before embarking on something like this. But um, but no, I think we've, um, yeah, we've managed to step things out on the right foot and, and have a, a, it's not just me, obviously, I have a, a supportive board. And, uh, and as I mentioned, my colleague in Perth um, and, and ex expanding team. So I think, um, yeah, very much a lot of a group of like-minded people um, all striving in the right direction um, is, yeah, it um, sets us up really well for success. Okay. And um, you were in private equity in doing finance in, in resources and did meeting, did that actually influence you in the sense that quite a, one of the things that private equity does is put you into contact with entrepreneurs. And did you look mm. at the people you were funding and get in some way inspired by them? Was that part of the story? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard not to come across some of these companies and, uh, and think to yourself, it'd be really exciting to be part of that. You know, we're, we're helping finance it, but they're the ones doing it. Um, so you're sort of one step removed uh, from the really exciting part. So yeah, I think that that played a role as well. And, and when you look at the broader team and, and try to, you know, our, our chairman, James Kelly, um, you know, he was with Extrata, later Glencore, so big mining companies, but then he became part of the founding team of, of Greenstone Resources, which is a, a mining focused private equity fund based in the UK. Um, you know, Mark Potter was the CIO of Anglo Pacific, which is a big um, mining royalty company listed in the UK, the only other mining royalty company aside from us listed in the UK, uh, and is now the CIO of Metal Tiger. So, it, you know, a smaller cap mining investment vehicle and obviously on the board of Trident. So I, I think 
all of us um, share a similar mindset in that regard, that we were excited by the, the niche that we've identified in, in the market and, um, and it seemed to be panning out because we're executing on deals, we've raised the financing we need. So everything's sort of full steam ahead, but uh, yeah, very much a, a group of like-minded people in that regard. And, and there's a lesson, part of this is sort of education, there's a lesson to be drawn as well. The, the startup community, which I'm quite connected to here is very often a little bit obsessed by the idea of the young entrepreneur that you, that, you, that somehow, you know, and, and sometimes criticized for that reason, rightly or wrongly. And I, you're, I, I don't think you'll be angry with me for saying you're 37 years old because that was published information, right? Yeah, 30, 38 now. So yeah, I, I don't know if I can class myself, classify myself as young, but, um, but not too seasoned. So somewhere in between, hopefully. Not too seasoned, but we had on the, we had on the podcast a couple of years ago, uh, maybe three or four years ago, Matt Clifford, who was the founder of and leads something called Entrepreneur First, which is a talent-based accelerator based in the UK. And he was saying that the average age of the people joining the program had gone above 40. And to begin with, everyone really? saw it was a young, person, a young person thing. And in fact, very often, that can be part of the edge of going into business. The fact that you've got maybe a few things under your belt that make it more likely you'll succeed. And, you know, I think I know the answer to this question, but you might surprise me. What would you mm. think are the things you've learned working for other people that help you believe that what you're doing now is going to be successful? Um, no, I guess, yeah, I've, I've, I've worked for a couple of places now where um, it was effectively set up by people with an entrepreneurial focus. So, you know, seeing their success and the, and the way they navigated through it um, was was pretty educational and in some cases pretty inspiring because you can you can see that these things are achievable. And, um, uh, yeah, whereas you, you don't necessarily get that at a larger, larger organization where you, uh, well, you know, you're very much removed from the, the team that has set it up or if, in fact, it's been set up sort of decades in advance. Um, so no, I, I think um, it's educational from the perspective of you, you see how they're navigating the, the building of a business, um, and then uh, and then it leaves you with a bit of enthusiasm to, 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 um, to try to develop your own concept. Um, so no, I, I think that that was a pretty critical um, part of the pathway for me uh, towards Trident. Mm -hmm. And it's and uh, I, I'll ask you to go again through what the business does. It's in it's in hmm. natural resources, and we I, I know this already, but it's uh, you. Was there something about natural resources, mining, quarrying, that type of business that attracted you? Because that's what you were that's what you were financing when you were in private equity as well. Was there something about that area of what of, of, of uh, commercial enterprise that attracted you? Yeah, so my background is in mining, and and even prior to um, to working in private equity in the mining space, <clears throat> prior to that, I was in. Uh, equity research uh, at, at BMO, uh, so one of the big Canadian mining focus banks, um, covering metals and mining, and, and part of that was with Orica Mining and strategic planning. So I, that that that's the industry that I'm in, um, and it is it's an industry that um, you know, it, it, in some ways, obviously, as old as time, and, and cannot uh, cannot feel very entrepreneurial or or like there's much excitement there relative to tech or other things like that but but there's actually quite a bit of opportunity because it's a very cyclical you know so, sort of industry right now gold is very hot because there's a lot of uncertainty in the world um but because um you know industry in general is down things like base metals and, and bulk commodities like iron ore um 
you know, they're, they're not as hot. And so there, there are opportunities to invest in that sector because they will have their day as well. And so there's opportunity for upswing uh, and, and gold, no doubt will, will taper at some point again, and there'll be opportunities in gold. So it's a pretty dynamic sort of industry um, when you look into it and, and each commodity is its own sort of little world uh, with different supply demand dynamics. So it's actually, you know, people sort of think of mining as being you know, digging up rocks and crushing them up and, and extracting the minerals uh, and relatively straightforward and unexciting. But there's a, there's actually quite a bit going on and and it ties in with, you know, what, what's going on in the macro world. You know, COVID is impacting mining, as you'd expect, in a significant way, um, as well as sort of, you know, when you get down to the asset level very much, you know, you're, you're looking at the micro aspects of the communities living nearby and how they can impact an operation or how the unpro uh operation is impacting them. So it's a pretty dynamic industry and a lot of opportunity. And as you said, well, we can talk to what we're doing specifically in the space, but, um, you know, in a moment, but effectively what we saw is, is there was a gap in the financing market uh, of mining operations. And, um, and it's because it, it is a developing and evolving world um, on that side of things. So that, and, it, and it's an industry that's, um, that's not overly crowded in that regard, uh, in the sense that, um, you know, even here in Denver, which is a bit of a mining hub for the US, you, know, there, you wouldn't bump into very many people in the mining industry relative to tech. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurial minded people to, to find niches and, and, uh, and opportunities to, to exploit. Yes, I, I, this is going to be the last question about your your background because I mm. I, I, I sense that what you really want to do is to talk about the business, which I, <laughs> which, I which I also want to talk about. But yeah. you said you, you your background was in mining, but was there a time like I don't know maybe when you were sixteen eighteen, around that stage in your life where you thought this is this is what I want to do? That sort of was there some pull because mining's a mixture of financing and technology and engineering, and I don't know whether. Yeah. And you get these massive machines and you know huge huge projects and was what what do you know why why you decided to go down that path like imagine you've got a four-year-old asking you why do you why did you decide to do what you did <laughs> or at the end of your life you're you're in front of the pearly gates and if they exist <laughs> and, and like what, what was the something what was it about mining that attracted you uh, I mean, it's it's pretty awe-inspiring if you go to some of these operations, you know, that they're, they're just massive equipment, you know, a, a massive engineering feat. Um, so I've, I've always been um, pretty, pretty excited about mining. And and then coupled with that, I'm, I'm, my background is, is finance as well and um, and very much a bit of a math nerd. And um, so, I, you know, marrying up the two was sort of a natural fit for me. So I, I feel like I've sort of landed right, right where I should really. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I'm, I'm significantly older than you. I'm 54, and I have to say I really don't know. And I've done many different businesses, and I'm still wondering <laughs> what my thing will be. <laughs> it's like, it, and it, it, it is the, excite, the excitement to bring something new to fruition. Is, is the great yeah. thing something that didn't exist before does exist. And I, I, I know some of my listeners will be wondering: Is he going to ask any questions about that? And I know that Trident mm. doesn't do thermal coal. What would you right. say to people who say you're evil? You shouldn't be doing what you do because natural resource, <laughs> natural resource ex, ex, extraction is wrong and you're damaging the planet. And, you know, I, I imagine that that question does get asked from time to time. And I'm just curious how you'd... How oh, you'd very occasionally. Yeah, there's an old saying in the mining industry that everything you touch has either been grown or mined. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you pick up your phone and there's, you know... A, a, you can find some really neat infographics on all the all the minerals that, that are in your phone, everything from 
from cobalt to uh, to silver and, and everything else. And you hop in your car and it's the same way. It took metallurgical coal and, and iron ore to make that steel and, uh, and bauxite for the aluminum. You know, so it's, uh, it'd be a bit naive for people to sort of say we should we should halt mining because it's it's a critical part uh, of, of society in producing the things that we use. Um, now that there's a very clearly a, a right way and a, and a wrong way um, to mine, uh, and we're we're very much aligned with ensuring that we only invest in projects that are doing it the right way. Um, so no, that, that that's um, yeah. I think everybody and the industry and as a whole is very conscious you know, to. Uh, environmental and social sort of impacts of, of, uh, of the mining operations. Okay. And I, mo moving on to what the business does, you, you took me through this, but mm -hmm. there are certain industries where royalties are a key part of it. And, you know, Hollywood, maybe licensing yeah. deals in pharmaceuticals, maybe publishers that royalties in mining is probably something that not everyone's familiar with. And remember that, not everyone listening is experienced in finance. So maybe kick off by explaining what a royalty is and then explain why they exist and why they're relevant to the mining industry. Yeah, sure. So, you know, fortunately, they are pretty easy to explain to somebody who's not familiar with them because we're not dealing with sort of complex derivatives or anything like that. Um, it, it simply is you provide capital to the miner and in exchange, they give you a percentage of their revenue. Um, yeah, so from an investor's perspective, if, if you're bullish on, uh, say, copper, uh, for example, we've, we just completed a copper transaction, uh, it's, it's an ideal way to get your copper exposure because your alternative is to invest directly in a miner that produces copper, but then you're getting bottom line exposure. You're exposed to all their costs along the way, um, and there are numerous instant, uh, uh, occasions where the, the operator, you know, the underlying commodity price may tick up and you've gotten that call right, but then the operator goes out there and does M&A or they expand their plant or whatever the case may be, they, they chew up that capital so you don't see it returning to you as an equity holder. Well, with the royalty, because you're getting a percentage of revenue, you're sitting at the top line. Um, so if, if copper ticks up, then the percentage of the, the revenue ticks up and your your share of that revenue increases. So it's, it's direct exposure. Um, and, but it still retains the, the asset benefits. So if they do go out there and expand their plant or, or drill and find more copper, um, then that extends the mine life or increases production. And that again, benefits revenue, which, which benefits your royalty, but you didn't have to pay for it. They're using equities money to do that. So it's got some real benefits from the investor standpoint. Now, why the miners would accept a royalty, uh, it can be numerous reasons, but um, you know, in some cases, either public equity is not available. You know, they can't go out in the equity markets. In a market like today, you, you may not be able to raise the money you need, um, or they may not want to raise at the share price and suffer the dilution. Um, so, you know, an, a, a royalty is obviously non-dilutive to, to equity, um, and relative to debt, it's covenant light. It only pays us when the asset is generating revenue, um, whereas uh, you know, a, a debt um, instrument. You, you, you know, might have a fixed payment schedule and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a certain niche where it makes sense for both parties. Um, and I suppose the, the real opportunity that we found is that um, it's increasingly being used. Uh, if you look at the peers in the space, it's pretty much uh, focused on precious metals in North America, um, which, is, which is the genesis of the royalty model effectively in the mining space. Um, but you'll see from our first two transactions, the first one is iron ore in Australia. The second one is a copper producer in Zambia. Uh, so those, those fall well and truly out of, out of our peers sort of purview. Um, 
they incredibly accretive transactions, but they just um, they don't fit their investment mandate. So you know what we think we found is an opportunity to um, to continue to exploit some of those um, you know some of those um, potential transactions that uh, you know really you're not competing with the other royalty companies because they don't play in the space. You're competing with equity and debt, uh, and and there's always sort of a niche where a royalty would make sense. Yeah. So for anyone anyone listening thinking this is interesting, if you go to Trident Resources, all, all this will be, uh, this is really for the benefits of the the online viewers. Uh, one of our viewers in India, Jonah, uh, a, a, a young man in Kerala province is saying hi from India. So greetings back to back to you. Um, and I think for some reason you muted yourself a moment ago. Uh, uh, yeah, you? just have a plane going by. So. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that. So I, I'm just going to see if I can post a uh, a link in the in the chat channel um if anyone yeah, we're, we're tridentroyalties.com so just uh change the name because we're in the process of changing from trident resources to trident royalties uh, yeah if you're if you're listening on the on the um if you're listening on the podcast as opposed to the the live broadcast now you'll get the show notes and links to adam but what one of the things about the uh the business proposal from the people providing the capital is the question of how certain the project is to be successful. And I would imagine that the earlier you are in the life cycle of the mine project, the riskier it is, and therefore potentially the bigger the royalty share you would get. But in the case of what you're investing in, you tend to be investing in established products, projects that are already like on the way or already producing, producing their product, right? Yeah, so it does vary, and we're, we're open to earlier stage stuff. We we would make it a smaller ticket size um, with regards to the investment size, uh, because initially what we want to do is build up a portfolio with with cash flow, because uh, that unlocks a lot of things uh, for us as a company. The ability to go out there and get debt to to continue to buy royalties, um, which is you know cheaper cost of capital relative to equity, um, and the ability to pay a dividend down the track. So we we are prioritizing cash flow, but we will do some earlier exploration and development stage assets. Um, but, uh, yeah, and there are a few ways you could structure around it. So the, the first royalty, cause you're very much right. You're, you're not exposed to the costs of the asset, but you are exposed in a binary way that if it shuts down, it stops generating revenue, you stop getting your share of revenue. Um, so you, you do want to look for very defensive assets. So the, the first royalty we acquired was, um, over an iron ore, uh, mine in, in Western Australia. So a good jurisdiction, it, it's operated by, uh, uh, mineral resources, which is a major, uh, ASX listed miner and multi-billion dollar market cap miner. They've just allocated 120 million to expand um, this particular asset. So you, you've, you've got a, an asset that's operating and it's selling into the market. So that's a known quantity opera, operated by a major who's expanding it and, and allocating significant capital to it. So a very de defensive asset um, you know, that, that could sort of has the wherewithal to survive some, some market turbulence if needed. Um, and then, uh, you know, using our second royalty that we just uh, announced earlier this week, it's over a copper asset in Zambia that's just ramping up production now. They just shipped their, their first copper cathode um, just last month. Um, so, you know, that you would say that, and it's operated by a private uh, company, a very good team, uh, but, but a private company that doesn't have the same sort of balance sheet as, as MinRes. Um, so the way we structured that one uh, in, in particular was... Um, to help mitigate some of this risk was uh, there's no minimum payments due this year. We've just paid our share of revenue. 
Um, but then next year we're paid a minimum of 375,000 per quarter that increases to 500,000 per quarter in 2022. And then for the first two quarters of 2023, we're paid 750,000 per quarter. So at that point in time, uh, we'll have recovered the 5 million that we invested. Um, so it, it's effectively a, a maximum of three years before we recover our cost of capital. And then from there, the percentage of revenue that is, is attributable to us steps down from one and a quarter percent to 0.3% for the remaining uh, you know, foreseeable future. So um, you get, we, you know, royalties are very sort of straightforward vehicles, but there's a lot of nuance where you can structure around different risk profiles. Um, so that's what we did in that case. So you, you can't sort of adjust to a certain extent. So I, 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 we just lost the last uh, couple of seconds of that with a little glitch, but you, I, I think to summarize it back, you were saying that like each deal is structured a bit differently, but what we've raised an issue, you, you raised, uh, I think about $20 million in your, uh, your, in your first fundraising, which made right. me think immediately, you're not going to have that many $5 million deals before you're out of capital. So, um, and you mentioned equity, you mentioned debt that obviously once you've got the cash flow coming in, you'll have, I guess you'll have the asset against which you can borrow and the cash flow, but will you be going back to, as you've proven your ability to execute, will you be going back to uh, different um, funds to raise more capital or because it's not that much. And for some of our listeners, 20, 20, for you and your private bank account, that would be quite a lot of money, but <laughs> in the mining industry, it's not a, it's not a vast fortune. No, that's right. I, you know, I think the, the short answer is it'll largely be dictated by what we get into the portfolio. So you know, as I flagged on the, the copper royalty in Zambia, that has a minimum payment of 1.5 US next year, and that steps up to 2 million the following year. Um, our iron ore royalty in, uh, in Australia, again, it's, it's all dependent on prices of the underlying commodities and how much they produce and, and all that sort of thing. But um, you know, we'd, we'd be quietly hopeful that that would pay about 2 million uh, US this year. So so as you build up that revenue, um, and as we acquire subsequent royalties and, and can build up the revenue and, you know, to the point where we're, you know, generating sort of five, six, seven million, um, that that does then, uh, it, it allows you to go to the debt providers and rather than being viewed as one or two single assets that they're lending against, you're, you're viewed as a portfolio of, of cash flowing financial instruments effectively. Um, so, the, you know, and we've had some of those initial discussions um, and, uh, and, you know, the rough guidance is, is circa two times of your pre-tax revenue is, is about what you can get in leverage, you know, some, some cases more, some cases less. Um, so really our intent is with this capital that we've raised to, to go out there and get some leverage so we can continue to build the portfolio. Um, you know, we wouldn't rule out a, a subsequent equity raise, um, but, uh, but ideally we can, we can build out the portfolio without suffering the dilution of continually going out there and raising money. Uh, or if we were to raise it, we would want it to be obviously at a, at a higher share price from our initial raise. Yes, that's right. And and these are things which may not make sense to someone who's early in their career, but usually people say raise as little as possible, as late as possible when it comes to equity. That's right. <laughs> uh, and then borrow up to the, borrow as much as the markets will provide, particularly these days, because I suppose part of the argument for what you do is with interest rates being so spectacularly low, anything that generates a re decent rate of return on capital is potentially very attractive to investors. That's right. Yeah. And, and lenders can take security over the royalties, you know, that they, they are, you know, long life assets. They, they convey in most cases with the tenement or the mining license so that they sort of never go away. Uh, even if the operation stops, the, the royalty is still over that ground in most cases. Um, so it, it's the type of thing that, that banks and, and credit funds can lend against.
Good. And so, so we and, and as, coming back to what a royalty is, you explained it so well, I'm not going to repeat it, but I was describing this to a friend yesterday and he said, well, so it's basically like a, an advance to an author of a book, like because you people, the author gets a, gets a, a lump of cash to write the book and then the book, if it sells, generates royalties. And yeah. I wasn't sure whether that was the right, that, that's a pretty simplistic and possibly maybe authoring a book is a bit riskier than doing what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's not hugely dissimilar. I mean, you're, and in that in that sense, it's 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 really not dissimilar from what from what equity and debt are trying to do as well. They they put down their upfront slug of capital, and then they expect streams a stream of cash flow to come back to them. Um, you know, this is just a slightly different take on that, uh, and has you know different risk profiles, and and we think is sort of one of the ideal ways to to play the the sector, um, unless you're sort of prone to to wanting to place bets on junior miners and you feel confident that you can pick the winners in that regard. Um, otherwise the equity space is a bit risky and, and debt, you know, you're, you're sort of capping your upside in that regard. So royalties kind of have some of the best of, of, of both categories. Yeah. When I asked you about the advantages of working for other people before you strike out on your own, I thought you were going to talk about contacts and know-how and building up some personal <laughs> cash of your own. And we'll come on to that, but, because I, most of my businesses are involved in technology, I wanted to ask about the impact of technological progress on the business case for doing what you do, uh, because you alluded to a problem, which is that if you invest in a mine, then potentially the management can blow all, their, blow all the money they're making out of their mining operations on CapEx, or on yeah. investments which don't yield a return. On the other hand, common sense and, you know, thousands of years of human history suggest that new technology always means that you can either do what you're already doing cheaper or you can do things you mm. couldn't do before which in the case of a mine might mean that in the case of mining in general might mean that over time miners get better at extracting the last drop of whatever yeah. it is or the last ounce of whatever it is they're mining for so over time as mines get technology makes mines more efficient that's very attractive for people who've got a royalty deal such as yourself. And do you see that as part of your case that over time the, the, mine, the miners get better at extracting than they were at the time you invested? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the key considerations is where the actual mine that you're, you're reviewing sits on, on the cost curve relative to its peers. So you don't want to be the, the highest cost iron ore mine, for example, because as soon as price, prices drop, you're, you're the first one that has to shut their doors. So yeah, where your position from a cost perspective is important. So um, yeah, I mean, the things like the, the fact that, uh, well, in that particular case, our iron ore royalty, the, the fact that they're expanding production means that their their costs, their fixed costs are now spread across more tons of production. And so they're now moving down the, the cost curve um, and are becoming a lower cost producer than they than they would have been if they were producing half as much. So that, that that's a really critical situation, uh, really critical uh, consideration. Uh, with regards to the technology side in mining, it, it's um, you'd be amazed at uh, some of the technological advances. Some some of the big mines in Australia, in particular, you know that they have autonomous trucks and dropping material into autonomous trains that that take it straight to the port and are autonomously loaded into ships. And so you know that they're, they're finding ways to um, you know that, to do things more safely because then you don't have uh, you know fatigue um, from the mine or you know the actual employees on the ground. Um, but then, you know, they can just run 24-7 nonstop very efficiently. You can control your, your um, 
you control your production with much more certainty. So that there's uh, there's there's quite a bit that they're doing on that front. Uh, that, that's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I one of my clients for another business I mentioned previously, we for the biggest Polish copper and silver mining conglomerate, KGHM. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were there was a, a European Union directive to do with tracking explosives. That I, it's a very reasonable yeah. thing i mean people complain about regulation but i think it's a highly desirable state of affairs that <laughs> yeah. regulated but you know this was a barcode system to keep track of all these these very sensitive materials underground and that was quite a successful project and i was wondering you know you've mentioned australia as sounding like it's a leader do you do you, are there areas of the world where you feel i don't know they're ahead or behind or is mining such a globalized industry that if you go to a modern mine, be it in Chile, America, Canada, or Australia, or somewhere in Europe, or Russia, they'll be having pretty much the same technology these days. Um, it, it really depends on the size of the mine. I mean, Canada and Australia are the biggest mining jurisdictions and sort of lead the way with regards to um, you know, technological advances and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've seen everything from some pretty advanced um really efficient sort of modern operations to, to still, um, you know, things sort of bordering on the artisanal. Um, so it's, it, there's still a pretty wide gambit. Uh, and, um, and clearly the, 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 the more you can get into sort of the, um, the well sort of oiled and, and operated operations, it just not only from the miners perspective, you have better cost control, all those sort of financial metrics tend to look better, but it, but it also tends to be, you know, more environmentally, friendly and um and better for the employees you know that, that, that sort of thing so it, it i'd say in that regard the mining industry's made some pretty leaps and bounds steps over the last sort of 20 years i'm just supposing there might be an entrepreneurial opportunity a little like real estate that if you're a well-run real estate company you can see a, a great building being badly run in a good area you can sort of turn it around in a way that and perhaps there could be a mine a mine a badly run mine on a very good resource uh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. And the opportunity there is to basically run it much better than the previous owners, who perhaps can get sort of sleepy and, over, it, depending on the ownership structure, might be making quite a lot of money just because the mine's so good, rather than the way they're running it. Yeah, that, that, that's right. You see that all the time, where you know a mine that's been operating for 15, 20 years, and still the same sort of equipment that's being held together with duct tape, so to speak. But um, and an operator that's just kind of milking it for cash. But a bit of investment would go a long way towards modernizing it and, and extracting more value ultimately. So there's a lot of opportunities like that. Other things you see is um, groups that go into particularly some of the some of the African countries where there's a lot of artisanal miners, and um, and then they uh, effectively rather than have the artisanals run around and, and do things unsafely and, and potentially damaging to the environment. They'll train them in sort of best practices and then they'll buy their the material that they're mining uh, from them. So in, in that sense, it's just almost sort of a co-op type structure, uh, but it institutes then some some best practices with regards to, to how they operate and that sort of thing. Um, and ultimately sort of benefits everybody and then makes for a sort of more efficient um, operation. Um, so yeah, th- th- there's quite a few examples of that sort of thing that happen. Well, if anyone listening is looking for an opportunity and they haven't they haven't figured out what to do, <laughs> um, they can call me or Adam. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> there might be something out there. It, it, it strikes it just strikes me that this is you know these old historic. You mentioned that it's as old as almost as old as humanity itself. That mm. in, in a in an area like this, it, it can be very surprising if you're not close to it. Just how much how much more efficiently things can be done if 
Latest no, technology is applied in the right way. And yeah. I, I wanted to come back to contacts and personal <laughs> savings as part of the or contacts and know-how that you. I asked you where you found projects from previously, and it then became very apparent that it was your years of being in the business that were relevant. But if you could, if you were trying to sort of describe how you, what what are the sources of your your leads of potential projects where you might provide capital in return for a royalty, how you get them and how you acquired the, the know-how and the contacts to, to, to make that possible. Yeah, sure. And, and, it, and it's not just, it's not just us as a management team. It's uh, the, the board has contacts as well. And then we've got three advisory groups involved. Um, uh, Tamas's partners out of the UK and then Azor and Ashanti capital, both out of, um, out of Australia. Uh, so they, they were instrumental as you'd expect in, in the fundraise. Um, uh, probably worth flagging that they, they took their their fee and shares so they're they're also shareholders and are on board with the strategy but but they get a lot of opportunities across their desks being resource focused advisors uh, and brokers so yeah they um it with the iron ore royalty was sourced from directly from our network and the management team and then leading on the advisors because they had some connections uh that could that could make the introductions for us uh, and then the copper one was one that came directly from the advisors because uh, they were familiar with the asset and the management team and and knew of the capital need there um so yeah they're coming in from sort of different directions and um but fair to say we're, we're not short on opportunities but between our networks and the advisory networks and then just the the standard conferences you know there, there's the EMEA lines and money conference going on this week um so you know taking sort of numerous meetings there and um you know just keeping your finger on the pulse of the industry in general and making people know that you're out there as a potential source of capital there there's there's quite a few opportunities okay so 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 conferences one of the very often people who don't realize what trade events are about, they go there thinking they're going to listen to interesting educational talks and the real value is going on in conversations <laughs> in the breaks. And, you know, that's right. Yeah. I, I did a training for a business I used to run 20 years ago, of like getting the most out of trade events. And I said, it, it's before, during and afterwards. And if you show up at an event without a diary full of appointments, and even if you don't get the appointment, the fact you, you you're going there gave you an excuse to cold call someone and say, I'm going to be there. Do you have time to meet? And people say no, but send me an email. And you've got that contact for when it's relevant, even even if they never met you. And it's you, that the fact you're both going to whatever it is, South by Southwest or whatever, it, it gives you an excuse to make that contact. Are you are you good at that? Are you are you are you are you sort of have you got a sort of salesy salesy background where you're 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 fine with cold calling total strangers if it's relevant to your business? Um, I'm, I'm not bashful. See, I, I don't mind cold calling people. Uh, I, I wouldn't sort of pitch myself as, as a salesman and by any means, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't, don't mind reaching out to people. And, and part of the, part of the fun of conferences is that they tend to be a, a marathon. So when you, when you get to go in person anyways, you know, it's, it, it is the coffee breaks and then, you know, the, the, the drinks after the conference ends for the day that, that evolves into dinner and then, you know, that sort of thing. And, and from there, you, you not only have a contact, but you've got sort of a, a friendly sort of acquaintance relationship where you can, you can call them up and you understand them and they understand you. And, um, and that's really the sort of things that you can leverage. So, yeah, I, I think while the virtual stuff isn't, isn't bad because you can still meet people and they're very efficient. You don't have to waste time traveling and checking into hotels and all that sort of thing. You, you do miss that, that sort of stuff outside the conference. Cause it's not really the necessarily the, the 30 minute meetings during the day that, um, that sort of open up the opportunities. It's the sort of stuff, you know, before and after and in between. Yeah, totally, totally. And I get there's a, and a couple of really important lessons 
like that, which, you know, hopefully the, the COVID thing will be over in six <laughs> or nine or 12 months to the extent, to the extent that people can get back to face-to-face meetings. But yeah. for, for B2B businesses where trust is really important, you can, you can go so far on phone calls and Zooms and things. And it's, yeah. it's, quite, it's impressive what you can do. And yeah. at the same time, you know, if, you, if you're investing millions and millions of dollars, whether, whether it's in a deal like you do or you're just giving a contract to someone like an SAP implementation or whatever, where if, if you screw it up as the client, your job is on the line as well. You need to really trust those That's people. That's right. Because yeah. you, know you know that it's tricky and it's difficult. So, so, that, that's, so, so people like to do business with people they like. Making personal contacts is important, but also having the awareness that if you've got a reasonable offer, there's no reason not to pick up the phone and talk to someone for whom your offer is relevant. Because, you know, if you're a good company, you're doing them a favor, even if they say no, because they, they had the chance to consider your offer. No, that, that, that's right. And, and even if they do say no, then, you know, that they, they know you're out there and they know what you do. And maybe, maybe it didn't work for them, but maybe it works for somebody else that they know and your name gets brought up. And now that, that, that's how it works. Exactly, exactly. And in terms, I mean, the, there may be a point up to which you're, you're not prepared, beyond which you're not prepared to answer this, but you obviously had you know, private equity, the salaries are fairly good. And did, did you feel that, did you like save in order to be able to invest in this business? Or did you just like have a cushion to mean that, you know, I'm sure as a CEO, this isn't going to happen or be like everything could happen. You know, the, your, your office building could be hit by a jumbo jet with your entire team, team there. That do, do, you, do you feel that it's, it's, um, you need to have like your own personal capital to go down the route you did? Or do you think if you've got the right skills, you actually will find people to back you, even if you don't have any money to put in yourself? Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it comes down to personal risk profile. I've got, I've got uh, a family, three kids, and a wife, and so for me, I'm very much all in <laughs> on on trying. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a personal saver by nature, so you know, I, I do sort of squirrel away, um, you know, as much as I can. But but I wouldn't say it was with a direct aim of of doing this specific thing. It was more with um, having in mind that I, you know, when the opportunity arises, I don't want to be I don't want to be handcuffed because you know, I can't take a risk um, because I'm loaded up with personal debt or something like that. So now that's just uh, my sort of personal philosophy was always to, to be able to position myself such that I can take advantage of opportunities. So, so that I actually gave a, a, a TEDx talk last year about opportunity readiness. And I, I explained what I meant. And it's like it's it's like auditing yourself with the question, like if an opportunity came along, are you ready? And one of one of the aspects was finance, but there was also, you know, are your relationships in good shape? Because if you if right. you need a needy boyfriend or you know jealous <laughs> jealous jealous husband, you know, if they don't like you going staying late at a coffee morning, what are they going to do if you go on a, go away on a three week business trip for the sake? Yeah, of that's right. <laughs> having, having good support at home, but it's also stuff like your 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 physical fitness and your personal health, and you know, the, or your level of education that even if you don't know what you want to do or what your opportunity is going to be, you can work on being ready for it as of right now. And that, so that certainly makes a difference. And, you know, as, as an investor, I also was a little suspicious if someone had been working for McKinsey or Goldman Sachs for a few years and claimed they had no savings because <laughs> those companies pay pretty high salaries. And if you can't, if you can't squirrel anything away while you're working for them, <laughs> I'm not sure you're going to be looking after shareholders money that carefully. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
not everyone's like that, but that's just just a personal thing. Um, yeah. So, and you you mentioned there's a bit of competition, and you mentioned there isn't that much competition in the space you're in. And I'm not sure whether you told me or us in this conversation or earlier mm. that one of the things that gave you the insight that this might be an opportunity was when you were on the other side of the deal trying to sell sell royalties. You'd, you couldn't. You had really attractive deals, and there just weren't enough buyers out there. Um, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, when, when you look at the royalty space, it's dominated by precious metals, um, precious metals-focused royalty companies. And when you look at the sort of full spectrum of listed royalty companies, uh, I, I think maybe there's 20 or so today. And of those, there's only two of us listed outside of North America. Um, so you you have this heavy concentration in North America in precious metals. Um, and so, yeah, when, when you're looking to, um, to monetize a royalty uh, that's non-precious metals and not up in North America, it's sort of, it's really just not a natural home for it. Um, so I certainly saw that uh, when I was on the other side of the equation. And that's kind of like what got the gears churning was, you know, just, it feels like, um, and, and fair to say that in the royalty space, if you rewind the clock, you know, maybe just 10 years, I think there'd probably be, you know, that 20 would be down to three uh, or so, you know, so it's, it, it's, and there's some big companies, you know, multi-billion dollar market cap royalty companies uh, in the mining space. But that said, it's still an industry that's, that's maybe classifies in its adolescence uh, in the sense that there are still, you know, niches to be filled. The fact that there isn't sort of a, a big multi-billion dollar diversified mining royalty company, there's only precious metals focused ones, you know, centered in North America. Yeah, that, that struck us as, as very odd. And the fact that there isn't a natural home for a uh, you know, for a, a copper royalty that um, that by and large, you know, you, you'd struggle potentially to sell that, um, even though a, a dollar from a copper royalty is as good as a dollar from a, a gold royalty. Again, that, that just struck us as very strange. It left us sort of scratching our heads. Um, so when the opportunity with Trident came along with uh, the advisory guys that had set up the original vehicle, uh, sort of thinking a similar, uh, a similar stream of thoughts, um, yeah, it just made all the sense in the world to, to make, a make the jump and, and capitalize on that. Mm. Yeah, so, so, and do, do you think that there are other walks of life where, the, like, it's moving into, it started with precious metals in, in, uh, in, in mining, and now, thanks to the activities of yourself, and, you know, you're not the only people in the world doing it, a few others yeah. um, is spreading to other areas. Do you think there are other sort of sectors, I don't know, maybe where this, the same sort of thing could happen in the future? Because it's obviously you meet a certain need to raise finance that's not as onerous as debt and not as not diluted. I know the, the case seems to be quite, quite strong. Can you see this spreading to other areas of the world economy in the long run? Yeah, actually, there's a few listed in the US and, and one I know of Duke royalties listed on the AIM as well. Uh, same uh, same board that we trade on. Now, Duke is a non non mining focused, so they invest. I, I, don't know them in very well good detail but i think they invest in sort of retail and and, and pretty much anything else uh, outside of sort of resources um so i mean at the end of the day a royalty is a financial instrument if, if there's a business that you know needs capital and is willing to give you a percentage of their revenue in exchange for some upfront capital you you can do a royalty um you know that it's not it's not specific to mining uh it's just um it's maybe prolifer proliferated a bit more in mining but but as you, you mentioned a couple examples previously on you know movies and other sort of things where royalties are pretty pretty common yeah i think i'd rather i'd rather have a mining royalty than a retail royalty right now <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah that's right
Okay, we're, we're draw, drawing to the close. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about the, the uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask you one specific question about the longer term ambition. If it goes well, and like you hit all your targets that your internal and external that you've set for yourselves or have been set, could you be doing this for 15, 20 years? Could you become a huge multi-billion dollar company like some of the big ones? Could that be your future? Or uh, where do you see yourself taking this if it goes the way you, you really want it to go? Yeah, so I mean, the, we definitely don't see ourselves as being capped in any way. I mean, I think ultimately what we'd want to do is, because um, I think we, we can extol the virtues of royalties and why they're a good way to get your mining exposure. And, and in an economy like today, where governments are printing fiat currency as quickly as they can, having exposure to real assets um, is probably not a bad place to park some of your money. So I think, uh, and, and royalties are a great way to do that. So I think you can extol all the virtues. Um, and then, as I said, there's just not a diversified miner to give you the broad spectrum of exposure to mining commodities. So what we'd want to do in, in the near-ish term is to build a portfolio that's broadly representative of the mining sector by commodity. So about a third precious metals, a third base metals, and a third bulk and battery minerals and everything else, which is which is roughly what the mining sector breakdown would be. So that a shareholder can have a single share of Trident and have exposure to the, the full breadth of mining commodities. So that, that's really the, the strategy. Um, and then you know, it's the kind of model that can really build on itself because um, you're not operating a mine, so you don't need hundreds of employees. You know, Royal Gold here in town in Denver, uh, they're a circa eight billion market cap company, uh, and you know, sort of 25 to 35 people in that office because they are financial instruments. You acquire one, you put it in your wallet, so to speak. You audit it and monitor the asset, but then you go out there and buy the next one, and you you keep building your portfolio. Um, so it, it's the kind of thing that can scale up without a commissariate scale up in, in GNA or expense. You know, we can maintain a relatively uh, low cost business model, um, but still grow the value of the company. And then there's really no cap to that. I think it is only a matter of time, whether it's us or somebody else, that you'll have a, a multi-billion dollar diversified mining royalty company. Mm -hmm. And I, what would be the sort of mistakes that I suppose someone listening to this who's maybe got more money than sense, and there are people in this world like that some of them have very important jobs right now um the the the, the um someone might say this all sounds really great and they just plow in without really knowing what they're doing what would be the biggest mistakes that you could imagine someone who who gets the general idea but doesn't know the details what what are the risk areas in this what can go wrong well i mean there are a lot of mining operations that start up and then just fall right over um so yeah, that that's where you know that the team we've assembled is is primarily mining finance professionals. So you know myself coming from mining private equity, where you're investing in mines and you know every every continent around the world and across the breadth of commodities. And before that, in mining equity research, before that, working for Oracle Mining, my colleague in Perth, um, he, he started uh, as a metallurgist, uh, as a metallurgist, um, and then did his master's of finance and CFA, and and then worked in mining private equity as well. So. Yeah, it's having the sort of right mix of financial acumen and, and technical acumen because um, there's no shortage of mining projects that need capital, but it's it's a matter of sort of picking the right ones. And uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's quite a bit of um, technical expertise and and, it, and it's not necessarily a matter of having it all in-house and there are consultants you can go to, but but then from there, it's the matter of having the network to know who's the right consultant. If you're looking at a, a gold project in Mali, who's looked at that particular geology before that could that could give you support um, and give you sort of the minutia uh, that maybe just a, a general consulting house couldn't couldn't provide you. So it, it gets pretty detailed when you, when you burrow into the 
into the nuances of this business model. So it, it's not quite as easy as just sort of placing a few bets and, and hoping they go well. Yeah, I know certainly. I think that if there's, that's a really important lesson that it's not just being ready to bring in expertise, but it's having enough expertise to bring in the right expertise. Because <laughs> there are that's a lot right, of, yeah. <laughs> just like there are dodgy miners who will happily take your, your, your capital, there are probably even more dodgy consultants who will who will take your capital and give you bad advice and uh, a fool and their money are soon parted. Um, so, yeah, no, that's right. okay, well, just drawing to the close, is there anything that we haven't asked you or you haven't shared that you think someone who wanted to get your story and the, and, and the Trident resources, or as it will be called soon, Trident royalty story, is there anything we haven't asked you or, or any advice you'd like to share with someone thinking about possible things to do with their life that they could learn from you? No, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage people to, to go to the website and, you know, our corporate presentations on there. My contact details are on there as well. So people can reach out if they have questions. I'll, I, I answer every email I get. So, um, so yeah, I'm, of course, happy to, to answer that. I'd encourage them to take a look at, at the company. We, um, you know, as mentioned, we, we, we uh, jumped on board of a shell that was already listed and had a bit of cash in it. So then we, we did our relisting and IPO on AIM earlier, um, but just about a month ago. Um, but, uh, but we're effectively trading in cash despite having done two, two very accretive deals. Um, big because you get that, that yeah, instance where the, the shell uh, shareholders that didn't originally sign up for a royalty company are, are exiting. So there's, I think, a bit of an opportunity for people to take a look at the stock as a potential shareholder. Um, so I think you know, it will be a matter of time before we re-rate and some of the value of the royalties we're starting to acquire will, will, will be demonstrated. Um, so yeah, I'd encourage people to take a look at the company and they have questions, uh, certainly reach out. Yeah, so I think this is the, the first time in the history of this podcast that we're going to end, end with a stock tip. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, I've, al I've already invested, but the, the objective of this, the objective of this, this podcast is not to pump the stock <laughs> so that we can both dump it. Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure to have you on the on the show. I will, uh, when it goes live uh, on the iTunes uh, podcast app and so on, I'll certainly let you know and we, we might yeah, collaborate, collaborate a little bit to f f see where we could get it out to audiences we both want to reach because this is an unusual, unusual content for me that we've never had a, a, a mining yeah. resources person and if in the future you want to be in touch about anything you're welcome to so from me and the project Kashmir audience i'd just like to say thank you very much and goodbye yeah great thank you appreciate it thank you for listening to another episode of project Kashmir, brought to you by me your host richard lucas if you enjoyed listening check out additional podcasts on our webpage projectkashmir.com or on itunes where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectcashmere.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward.
interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.